Hey guys, I was recently asked to be a guest on another podcast titled Mafia. The producer emailed me and said she liked my podcast episode on Jimmy the Weasel Fradiano. That's Aladina Fradiano. I went back and gave it a listen and edited all the extraneous chit-chat out. And so here is an encore version of me telling about Jimmy the Weasel Fradiano and the murder of the two Tonys in Los Angeles, California during the 1950s. Enjoy. You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Los Angeles was kind of a subset of Chicago and Cleveland, the Midwest mobs. The New York mobs didn't really, they sent some people out there, but the Midwest mobs kind of felt like they controlled things out on the West Coast because they were closer. And they had sent people out there, and and we're going to talk about two people that got killed that were from Kansas City that were out there, and they also were killed in this movie. Now, if you remember in this movie, there was uh, Russell Crowe portrayed a guy who was kind of obsessed with spousal abusers. He beat the crap out of one of the guys early in the movie, and, and that's when the uh, kind of evil lieutenant of this small squad recruited him in because they wanted to do some strong-arm work. And I started to say about Mulholland Falls, and there's been some other depictions of this, the, the LAPD, kind of a special squad, maybe it was their kind of like their intelligence unit, and when mobsters would come to town, they would take them up on Mulholland Drive and at the Mulholland Falls and throw them off. And maybe they lived and maybe they didn't, and they told them not to come back to town. I did that to plenty of people, but I, I think probably some money went out as the mob guys came out and they started establishing businesses out there and establishing rackets and, and people being people why they bought their way in. And so we had Russell Crowe, and he was working with a guy named uh, Jack Vincennes, who was played by Kevin Spacey who was uh, like a technical advisor on a movie at the time. I think all those LAPD guys probably tried to get into movies at some point in time. They they were they investigated only the big-time crimes, and, and it's like the robbery homicide unit of the early days. And, and, and the other guy, was uh, his, his name in the movie was Edmund Exley. He was played by an Australian, just like Guy, uh, Guy Pierce. Uh, Russell Crowe's an Australian. This guy's name was Guy Pierce. And he was an Australian. He played the straight arrow policeman who, in the end, proved to be a little bit corrupt. And, and it showed that everybody has a little tinge of corruption to him. And as he was on his way up. He wanted, he wanted to be the chief of police someday. And that's the kind of guy that becomes a chief. A guy that, uh, that can walk, to, walk that line and not, not go over too far and not, go, not be construed as too political and too ambitious, but yet he really is, and, and he does move on up. And I've seen many guys like that. You know, they had a one interesting little thing on on a Christmas Eve. They go into the jail, called it Bloody Christmas, and they mm-hmm. go into the jail, and they just beat the crap out of some of these crooks in there. I tell you what, being a policeman back in the 50s, was uh, there was a fine line between the cops and the crooks, uh, everything I've ever been able to learn. You know, the guy that, that kind of taught me everything I knew in the intelligence unit was an old-time detective hired on in Kansas City. He was a World War II vet and, and came on in like 1950 or 51, and he told me the first guy he rode with, they put him with a guy who was riding a night car, beat car, 
on West 12th Street, which was where all the strip bars and the honky-tonks were. And, and all night long, this was like pickup night. This guy would swing by and get money from these uh, bars, and they gave him money in order for protection and to leave him alone if they had any kind of problems. Why this guy would, would swing in there and handle him or maybe throw somebody out for him, or if they wanted a money run, go to the bank. Afterwards, he'd, he'd take the, the, the barmaid on a money run to the bank and do a night drop and, and, and always take the bartender's side if there's any kind of dispute. And he said at the end of the shift, Ray told me, he said, you know, he said the guy pulled up, and he counted out the money. He counted half on one side of the seat and half on the other side of the seat. Ray said, I looked at him and said, no, I don't want that. The guy said he just looked at him, picked all the money up, scooped it up, and walked off. And, and from then on, this new recruit was assigned alone. He did not ride with anybody else. Anyhow, I digress. They'd take those uh, La Cosa Nostra mobsters and throw them off of Mulholland Drive you know, off the falls if they didn't agree to go back to Chicago or Cleveland or wherever they came from. So the two Tonys, the two Tonys came out from Kansas City. That's what caught my eye on this. I was noodling around looking for stories and interesting stories on the Internet, and I kind of knew about this, but I'd forgotten about it. They were kind of minor mob guys in Kansas City. Their real names were Anthony Brancato and Anthony Joseph Trombino. These guys were from Kansas City, and they really were just muscle for hire who had been arrested many times in Kansas City and, like, you know, Ambitious young men in the 50s, they might want to go to California to be where the streets are paid with gold out there in Hollywood, uh, sleep with those Hollywood stars and, and make a lot of money and, and, and really take their, their act to someplace where the, the police didn't know them. They, the Chicago outfit had already kind of put uh, the boss in place out there, a guy named Jack Dragna, who was the boss, and, and these guys show up and they probably had some... Somebody had gotten hold of somebody and said, hey, these two dudes are coming out. They're tough guys, and, and maybe you can use them. They're looking for work and need some muscle. They got out there, and they became part of Mickey Cohen's crew. Mickey Cohen was a, was a gambler and, and was had been connected with the uh, East Coast Mafia for a long time, and he'd moved out to Los Angeles and had a book going out there, a, a sports book. He's he's a moneymaker for the mob. And so he, he took these two guys in to... Muscle people, you know, somebody owed him money, or he thought somebody, one of his bookies was cheating on him. Why well, he could send uh, uh, send Trombino and Brancato, the two Tonys, out and, and muscle them. Now, Mickey Cohen, you know, what's interesting about Mickey Cohen, this is a mob book that most people never heard of. He he co-wrote with another author. is like, he, you know, he was part of it. It wasn't just some mob expert gathering up public documents and writing stuff. This is Mickey Cohen, my own words in which he described this Brancato. He said, uh, uh, then he started stepping out on his own. He was on the heavy and on the heist, and he was heisting people that were contrary to the rules of the people he was supposed to have respected, not only me but others. Talking about the two Tonys, they were wild-haired young bloods that thought they were just going to run roughshod over everybody. Well, I couldn't pay them much attention then because of my troubles. They thought they didn't have to show any respect for nobody. You know, he he was probably complaining to the mob boss, Jack Dragna out there, that these guys were out of control. They were robbing people they weren't supposed to rob, and they weren't showing respect. And, and Cohen just, he, he had his own problems, and he didn't really have time. He he claims that he he tried to counsel Tom, uh, uh, Tony Brancato, but the guy wouldn't listen to him. In 1951, the early summer of 1951, Mickey Cohen was 
in penitentiaries at Alcatraz, I believe, had a federal charge for, I don't know, probably income tax. I can't remember now. The two Tonys had, by this time, had a combined record of, I got this written down here, 46 arrests and 17 convictions. Their crimes included aggravated assault, armed robbery, burglary, narcotics violations, rape of all things. You never hear mob guys getting charged with rape. And they were also suspected of several murders. Now, some of those murders might have been for Mickey Cohen or for Jack Dragna, the mob boss out there. But these guys, uh, they just didn't care. They were They were running wild. Then they did... The unthinkable at the time. In June of 1951, along with three other masked gunmen, robbed the Flamingo Hotel's cash room or the Flamingo Casino's cash room of $3,500. Now, the Flamingo was a mob hotel and a mob casino. And this guy named High Goldbaum, who ran the book in Las Vegas, and he was there and he recognized Brancato and Trombino. He had been, uh, Goldbaum claimed that he. When he had a bookmaking operation in Beverly Hills, he'd been robbed by the pair before. And additionally, his other identification besides knowing their faces was that Brancato, who had always wore a straw hat, lost it, and the police recovered the hat. And, of course, the mob guys were going to know exactly what kind of hat that the police recovered because they would have been pretty well connected with the local police in Las Vegas, Nevada in 1951. Anyhow, uh, about a week later, they were arrested in San Francisco for something totally different. They got out on bail. They skipped town. They went back to Los Angeles. They were kind of laying low. They were still were collecting money for people to make some money. And in July, the two Tonys collected about $3,000 from a guy named Sam Lazis, an agent working for a West Coast bookie named Abe Benjamin. The money was supposed to be paid to another syndicate bookmaker, but the two pocketed the cash. Then they went back and tried to extort some more money from this bookie. Sam Lezis said that he owed even more money, and they're trying to get more money out of him. By then, Jack Dragna, the L.A. mob, had enough, and they contacted Jimmy, Jimmy the Weasel, Jimmy Fradiano. Jimmy is Aladina Fradiano, actually born in Italy, came to the United States when he was a little kid. He'd been raised in Cleveland, and he'd move out to Los Angeles during the mid-1940s. In 1947, with the sponsorship of Johnny Roselli, who was a, originally a Chicago guy that was sent out to Las Vegas and, and Southern California to represent the Chicago family, and under his sponsorship, Fradiano was, became a made member of the Los Angeles crime family, which, as I said before, was led by a guy named Jack Dragna. Back in Cleveland, Fradiano, even though he was out in the L.A., area and working for the Dragna family out there, he still kept connections back in Cleveland and back in the Midwest. And and when I talked about that, there was a mob war between the Italians and a, an Irish mobster named Danny Green. There's a famous movie about it called Kill the Irishman in a documentary. You can, uh, you can get, find that documentary. It used to be free streaming on, uh, uh, YouTube. I'm not sure about, uh, Kill the Irishman, the narrative movie. but And it's a pretty decent mob movie. It, it didn't have, uh, uh, you know, really big-name actors that uh, uh, Paul Servino was probably the biggest name in there. But it, it was a good movie. Anyhow, somebody killed Danny Green. If you remember, they killed Danny Green by parking a car right next to his car filled with explosives. And when he walked up to get in his car, then they used a remote control and blew up the car next to his and killed Danny Green. Well, they arrested a guy named Ray Ferrito, 
who was a Cleveland mobster, and he implicated Fradiano in the planning of that murder. And so Fradiano had a warrant issued for the murder of Danny Green at that point in time. And Fradiano, when he came in, he'd had enough, and he agreed to become a government, government witness. And he had information about all the hierarchy from New York to L.A., all across the United States. He was a very valuable informant. He actually ended up writing a book called The Last Mafioso and another one called Vengeance is Mine. He did it with other people. And so Fradiano actually finally solved the murder of the two Tonys. It's a guy named Alan Mays uh, wrote that he really studied this out and, and wrote a pretty interesting article on this. He said that uh, uh, there was another, this is kind of how the two Tonys ended up, you ask how they ended up out there and working for the L.A. mob. Another guy named Norfia Brancato was a relative of Tony Brancato, and uh, he was the older brother, and he had been working out there with uh, the mob guys, and, and Mickey Cohen liked him. He said he was loyal, and he had respect for people, and he was a gentleman. And, and he asked permission to bring his younger brother Tony Brancato, who then brought his, his friend Anthony or Tony Trombino out with him to become part of Cohen's crew because they worked for Cohen for a while. But as I said earlier, Cohen said in his own book that Brancato was stepping out on his own. He was stealing from people he shouldn't have been stealing from. He, he ripped off the uh, Flamingo Casino. Him and his buddy ripped off the Flamingo Casino. Cohen couldn't do anything about it. Anyhow, he was in jail. Uh, he was in prison in Alcatraz. They turned, they're turning Jimmy the Weasel loose on the two Tonys. He gets hold of Benjamin the bookmaker, and Benjamin the bookmaker goes to Jimmy the Weasel, and he tells him about the shakedown. And, and I'm sure what they don't say in this, that he had to go to Jack Dragna and say, here's the deal, and Jack Dragna would have had to approve this kind of a hit. So once he approves the hit, then... Jimmy the Weasel has the original bookmaker, Lazus, contact Brancato and Trombino and set up a meeting. And he sets it up in kind of a safe place at the home of one of Jimmy's friends. And they, when they showed up, they were a little bit suspicious. And Fradiano tried to put them at ease and said, you know, hey, uh, I need some help. We, we, we need to make a really good score and I, I need you to I need you to help and and we're gonna we've got a high stakes poker game where the take might be as much as forty thousand dollars. Well that sucked them in. Immediately they got relaxed. And they thought, oh boy, here's some money. You know, you can always get you can always relax people when they get greedy. They just thought they were smarter than everybody else. And then when he when he played into their greed, then he had them. So now they trust Fradiano and they think, oh, yeah, we're all going to get together and, and go make this big score, 40 grand in a high-stakes poker game, probably a bunch of businessmen or something. That Somebody's not a protected game. Wouldn't go rob a bunch of mob guys at $40,000 in a protected game. Fradiano's a made guy. They're just happy to be doing a big score with a made guy. That's how that works. So they all met one night. A few days later, they all met at Nick Licata's 5 o'clock club. And I'm not sure where that is in L.A. And he and Licata was kind of in on this. He planned a party at the club that evening so the assassination team would have an alibi. And from there, they were going to have people there that would, the people that ended up killing Broncato and Trombino would testify that Fradiano and whoever else was in on the hit were there all night long. 
but they the Fradiano and his hit team and the two Tonys all left. They're going to go out and do this score. The two Tonys think and and one of them was Jimmy Fradiano, and in the car with him was a guy named Charlie Bats Battaglia and Angelo Polisi, and he was driving. Right. And then in the other car, there was a guy named Leo with the moniker of Lips. How do you get a moniker as a man of lips? But Leo Lips Morseri, Moseri, Leo Lips Moseri. And, and he would actually be a future underboss of the Cleveland family. Cleveland and really had a lot of connections with L.A. in the 50s, kind of interesting. I didn't know that they drove the second car, which was the protection car. Now, a protection car or a blocking car, mob guys, when they go out, they, they like to, they're going to do some kind of a, a piece of work, they might call it, or a hit or a, a, a robbery or high-end robbery. Well, they like to have, you know, the people who got your getaway car, you know, your wheel man. We talk about a police motorcycle officer is a wheel man, but the wheel man in the mob parlance is the guy that drives the getaway car. <laughs> well, you got your wheel man, and he's got the getaway car, but then you'll have a second car in case they end up in a car chase with the police. And the blocking car or the protection car will then block off the police, maybe just run into them or just get in between them and slow way down. Fradiano and the block and had a car and two guys with him. The two Tonys had their car, which I believe was like a 49 Oldsmobile. Fradiano pulled up with his guys, and, and he and one of his guys gets out, and they're going to go get in the back seat of the two Tonys' cars, and then they're going to go do this high-stakes card game robbery. So when they get in the back seat, he ha- just as he's getting out of his car, he hands this other guy a gun. He's got a gun. He said, now, he said, as soon as we get in the back seat, as soon as I'm in and I close my door— then just start shooting the guy right in front of you, and I'll shoot the guy in front of, in front of me. He was behind the driver, and this Charlie Batts Battaglia was the other guy, and, and they, he was supposed to get behind the passenger in the two Tony's cars. Fradiano and this other guy, they walk over, and they're going to get in the back seat, and then they're going to go do this robbery of this high-stakes card game. Only when they get in the car, this battalion, he's scared he's scared to death and he fumbles around and he can't get the door open and Fradiano, he's you know, he's Mr. Cool. And he just reaches over and opens it. He's already in and, and once Battaglia gets in, why Trombino's behind the wheel and Broncato is in the passenger seat. See Fradiano was behind the passenger and Battaglia is behind the driver. Fradiano pulls his gun out, he starts shooting. He just sticks it right up against Broncato's head and fires twice. And then Battaglia, he's frozen, and he can't seem to get his gun out. And Fradiano's screaming at him, says, get your gun out. God damn it, get your gun out. And then he has to turn his gun and shoot the driver, Trombino. And he empties the, the, he shoots Broncato twice in the back of the head and then empties, it'd be a thirty-eight, so it'd be six shots. And then he shoots five, four more shots into Trombino and some of those went out through the uh, front glass. When you look at the crime scene photographs, you can see all the holes in the windshield. The other guy, by then, Battaglia, he finally gets his gun out and fires out, out, and he probably shoots out through the windshield, too. So they both jump out of the car and go get in their getaway car and, and take off. Probably as his first hit. I, we don't know for sure, but it was, probably was because he was scared to death. He couldn't hardly get his gun out, and he only really and he only fired once, according to this author here. I don't know if he did or he did, how many rounds. It looked to me like there might have been more than just six rounds, seven rounds shot, as many holes as there were in the windshield. Tell that he shot the guy in the passenger right in the head because there was no bullet holes in the windshield in front of the passenger, but there were holes in the windshield in front of the driver. 
and that's the one that Bradiano was shooting at from an angle, and the guy behind him probably started shooting after he was already dead. It's thought that uh, Fradiano did not tell the boss, Jack Dragna, about Battaglia's performance because he, was, he, was he would not killed after that, and, and Fradiano was pretty sure, he had told uh, Mickey Cohen that he was pretty sure that uh, Battaglia would have been killed if, he'd have found, if Dragna had found out how he chickened out on the deal. They immediately drove away and went to a safe house, took showers, cleaned, changed clothes, and went back to this 5 o'clock club to continue the party. And so everybody, when they're called, when they're, they're arrested, they got witnesses, alibi witnesses, said they'd been at the party all night. And just as Fradiano anticipated, the police were at his door the next morning. These guys, the, the coppers, knew this was a mob hit, and they knew that Fradiano would be number one on the hit parade to maybe do a hit. So they arrest him and take him in, and Fradiano was had a rep- he had a reputation by then. He was a bad dude, and and you got to understand back in those days in the fifties, the cops and the the mob guys were a lot closer. So it would be likely that they would know who was doing what, and that they would at least go through the motions. But you know they're not gonna nobody's gonna testify. It's kind of like everybody plays their part. If you're a made guy, that you make sure everybody in your little circle know it, and then they like to go around bragging about, oh yeah, I'm, I'm with I'm with the weasel, you know, I'm with Fradiano, he's made, you know, he's made, because it makes it gives them a certain, you know, je ne sais quoi, a certain uh-huh. extra something special that they can then use to protect themselves. Actually, if they think you're with a made guy, then you are going to be protected from certain other predatory criminals out there. And these guys were losers, man. <laughs> they, they they were they were destined to die early, doing shit like that, and then don't even have enough sense to to suspect that when a guy like Fradiano after that shows up and wants to be your buddy, anytime somebody that's not never been in your life much and and might even have reason to not like you shows up and wants to be your buddy, you better get suspicious. You know, what's an- another thing about uh, the author here said he obviously read the police files and said the police had, had actually correctly guessed and arrested all the participants in the mo- murder plot, including... Lips Morseri, the driver of the protection car, but the whole investigation fell apart because, as we talked before, they had a waitress who had been at this party at the five o'clock club, and she got up and testified that Fradiano had been at the club all night long, and so had all these other guys. And then, and then they got her in front of a grand jury, and she claimed that two detectives came to her home and tortured her with cig- burnt cigarettes to try to get her to change her testimony. So. So they, you know, they walked on it. They they totally walked on it. But this murder, a double murder like that, and in it, sometimes they throw the guns away right there or just a block or two away, which has happened several times in Kansas City. Here they must have, they, they took, threw them in, the, you know, Echo Park Lake or whatever, the ocean or whatever they've got out there in, in uh, California. They threw them away. They got rid of them. Uh, they did not ever show back up, to the best of my knowledge. Lots of times they'll throw it away just a block down the street, so they don't want to get caught with a murder weapon. And this this murder allowed Fradiano to establish a reputation as a ruthless enforcer, which really saw, followed him all of his life until he went in the witness protection program. There's a lot more to uh, uh, to investigate out there in L.A., but this is just one little tidbit where we got these two guys. What I thought, what I liked about it was that we had this connection with the movie and Kansas City and, and uh, the whole nine yards where I thought people would be interested in it. 
Well, folks, thank you for listening and all your nice comments on the Apple Podcast reviews, plus your nice comments on my YouTube channel, where I often put up the uh, at least the Zoom interviews so you can see what my guests look like uh, in real life. Uh, also on our Facebook group, Gangland Wire Podcast. I, uh, I see a lot of really good compliments on that. I've got some great people that help put up really good content, so if you want more mob information than you can shake a stick at, go to Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook page, or actually it's a group. Remember that if you support the podcast with some donations, you'll get an invite to my live Zoom call, where we'll share stories, answer questions, and in general, have a good time. Don't forget to buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on Venmo on your Venmo app, or you can go to Gangland Wire, my website, ganglandwire.com, and donate. I have a donate page, and and each uh, podcast that I put up has a pretty lengthy written blog piece about what the subject is, and at the bottom of that page, there's a way to donate. I have some fixed costs, and plus I'm raising some money for my next documentary, which is about the KC mob and the election fraud of 1946. I've already had to hire a film guy to do a couple of my interviews, and I have one more interview to film. Plus, some uh, I have an artist that I pay to do some illustrations for my movie. If you remember from Brothers Against Brothers or Gangland Wire, I use some illustrations in those. And by the way, you can rent those on Amazon for only $1.99. Or two ninety nine if you want the HD version. And finally, I have my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. But in that book, you're going to find copies of a lot of the transcripts of the actual wiretaps. And if you get the Kindle version, I took those audios that I got out of the court files and link them to the book in the proper places i have an explanation and then the actual audio wiretap which i think is kind of unusual so you can go to amazon and get that book and get it in the kindle version gangland wire supports the veterans administration and their programs that help veterans with ptsd you can call their hotline at 1-800-873-8255 and push one or go to their website www.com ptsd.va.gov. I hate saying that www. I left it out when I said something about gangland wire. You guys all know I can leave that out. Anyhow, thanks a lot for listening and uh, listen up next week. I try to put out one a week. (laughs) 